if you're new here or visiting for the first time, we're going through a series entitled Christ Our Center. Uh, we're going through from front to back through the book of Colossians. And this morning, we're looking at Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 21 to 23, Christ Our Reconciliation. Read it with me in your bulletin. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we come now into your presence, and just as we read here, just as we read in the uh, reading from Isaiah, that this is a daunting enterprise because you are holy and we are not. You are without sin, without error. You are completely pure, and we are full of sin. This passage says that apart from Christ, we are alienated, we are estranged, we are separated from you. Father, would you invite us in again? Would you show us how we can be reconciled with you, that we can come into your presence free from any and all accusation, without blemish. Lord, let us remember the gospel, the work of Jesus that makes that possible, and would his work, would his life, would his resurrection be understood clearly during this time. We pray that you would bless the reading and the teaching of your word now, and it's in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, Paul gave us an ancient hymn, a poem about who Jesus was, and it was almost like a map a map of the entire cosmos, because what he said was Jesus is the creator, the sustainer, the reconciler, not only of human souls, but of the entire cosmos, that that poem is like a map of what's really true about our world and about our universe. And now he gives us in this passage a very concrete example of God's reconciling work through his son, Jesus. I love those t-shirts that have a picture of the Milky Way on it, and it has a little arrow that says, you are here. Well, that's kind of what this passage is. He gave us the map of the entire cosmos, and here's the you are here sign, the kiosk in the mall, if that's a better example. This is the you are here, where you fit as an individual in God's grand scope of reconciliation. And we're going to look at reconciliation from three perspectives, the reason why we need it, the reason for reconciliation, the reversal of reconciliation, and then the results. What are the results of this work of reconciliation? First of all, reason. Why do we need it? Why do we need reconciliation? Well, Paul made last week this phenomenal proclamation that changes everything, that God himself became human, that the divine took on flesh and walked among us that he came from heaven, took on flesh, took on a physical body, and this changes everything. Now, even if we can't agree on the way of reconciliation, even if we're not ready to say, yes, Jesus is the way that we can be reconciled, we certainly can see 
We don't have to look very far to see the scars of humanity's sin across our world. We see children that need to be reconciled to their parents because of abandonment or abuse. We see couples at the divorce table who need to be reconciled to one another. We see warring factions around our world. We see different political visions of the future that need to be reconciled. But what our passage is saying this morning is that behind, more fundamental to all of those uh, conflicts that are happening in our world, all of those needs for reconciliation, that there's a much more fundamental need. It's that we as humanity are estranged and alienated from God, and that this breakdown, this conflict, is far more fundamental than all of those conflicts that I mentioned a minute ago, all of the needs of reconciliation that we come across in our daily lives. It is our estrangement from God that stands behind that. He says, in addition to that, what is more foundational than all of these conflicts that need to be reconciled? What also needs to be reconciled? Well, he says in verse 21, in a very, in a quite unflattering way, that you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And we need to parse his language a little bit to see what he's really getting at. But he's at least saying that there is an evil in the world, that there is an evil that actually cuts right through every one of us in this room. Did you catch the quote in the contemplation section this morning? Alexander Solzhenitsyn, of any of us in this room, has probably witnessed more evil external to himself. And yet, notice what he says. If only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Evil. Evil resides in you and I. It's often a word we reserved for dictators, for the worst of humanity, for terrorists. But Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Paul, Jesus says, actually, there's evil that resides in each one of us. And as a result of that, there is estrangement. There is alienation. There is separation from God because God is holy. As Isaiah said, holy, holy, holy. And he stands there overwhelmed because he has seen a vision greater than what we have seen of God himself. And he says, holy, woe unto me, because I am a man of unclean lips. I am unclean. I can't come into the presence of God because I am evil. And because of this evil, we have compromised our relationship with God. Now, it's important to note here, because our translation makes it sound like, it seems to suggest that we're enemies because of our behavior, that our, con- that our conduct is the thing that keeps us from God. But when we look through the Gospels, you see, who is it that is most attracted to Jesus? Jesus, the holy rabbi, the son of God, who flocks to him, who is mesmerized by him? It is those with the worst behavior. It's those with the least outward conformity with the law. It's those who know they blow it. It's the pimps, the prostitutes, the tax collectors that are drawn to Jesus and who is repelled by him. It is those who seem to have the most outward moral conformity with God's expectations and his law, those that are the best of society. The religious elite don't want anything to do with them. 
Paul is not saying here that we are estranged from God because we misbehave, because your conduct is so poor. He is saying it should probably be better stated that our evil behavior, and if you are reading in the Bible, there may be a little footnote in your Bible because the Greek is rather complex here, but he says our evil behavior, it should be, shows or demonstrates that we are enemies in our minds. There's a much more important, much more fundamental hostility than just your outward behavior. It is that you are alienated in your minds. It is that you are an enemy in your mind, that you're hostile to God and his purposes in your minds, in your thoughts. The foundational evil here is finding no need for God in your life. It's resisting living under his care. The evil in view here, the sin underneath the sin, if you will, is the hubris that presumes that you can be your own king, that you don't need God, that you can make your own choices. The evil is is supposing no spiritual deficit, no need to be reconciled. And that's why those who had the worst behavior who were rejects of society, outcasts. That's why they flocked to Jesus, because they could see it was very apparent to them that I have a deficit, that I am spiritually in need. And so they flocked to Jesus. And those who saw no spiritual need said, I'm fine, because look at my record. Look at what I've done. Look at how well I have conducted myself. Jesus was very off-putting to them. Their outward holiness masked an unholiness of their hearts. Fundamentally, the evil that is in view here and throughout the book of Colossians, throughout the Bible, is rejecting God as he reveals himself. It's presuming to approach God in any manner that you see fit and not in the way that he invites you to approach him. The alienation, the estrangement from God is a result of our sinful independence. It's living as though we can approach God in any way that we want, that we are fit for the king. It's presuming that God is holy, not holy, 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 that there is no separation between or not much between him and us. That's the reason that we need reconciliation, because God is holy and we are not We have nothing that we can bring to him and say, God, now you owe me. Grant me salvation because look at how well I behaved. Look at what a good person I am. No, no matter how good you are, you fall short of what God's requirements are. You fall short of his character because he's holy. But notice, what does he offer? He offers a reversal, a complete reversal. Goes from estrangement to alienation from God, that he is your accuser and he offers to accept you. Now, he uses this terminology here, without blemish. And when we read that, that doesn't make a whole lot of, uh, you know, specific significance to us. We don't talk about that, that, that much. But what he is getting at is he is using Old Testament language. He is inviting the Colossians to remember the Old Testament law. In the Old Testament, in the Levitical law, the sacrificial law, you have this elaborate system of rules dealing with food, dealing with blood, dealing with animals, dealing with circumcision, rituals for worship that the Israelites, God's people, were to live by. 
And they had to follow them, and they had to offer sacrifices, and that was the only way that they could be presented as clean, as without blemish, as if they'd followed that system. Now, that seems very primitive and very outmoded. And if you've seen the book, The Year of Living Biblically, this author tries to live that way for a year just to kind of satirize that whole approach. Who would think that that has any relevance at all to our modern sensitivities, our modern spirituality? And even in the early centuries, you see many heresies that that spring up that are based upon this idea that we need to kind of do away with that Old Testament idea of the holiness, the distance of God, that in the Old Testament, he was seen to be harsh and demanding and, you know, kind of cranky. And, but in the New Testament, we have Jesus, and he's much more accepting. He's more nice. He's less difficult. He doesn't talk about sacrifice and holiness in the same way. And so we see these heresies spring up in the early church that tries to differentiate between the Old Testament God and his character and the way that you would approach him and the New Testament, the New Testament God and the approach to him. But what was the point of these elaborate rituals? What was the point of this system that was very methodical and very elaborate and very difficult to follow? What was the point? What was underneath that system? It was demonstrating that there is something different between God and you and I. It was demonstrating that there is something wrong spiritually, that there is a spiritual estrangement. And it used physical aspects as sort of visual aids to help you understand that there's an inner alienation, a much more foundational alienation than just that you physically are unclean. In one sense, the Old Testament says those things now are outmoded. They're outmoded as visual aids. You don't need them in order to come to worship to be clean, but not what they signified. What they signified, the holiness of God and the distance between him and you is absolutely still relevant. And we need the Old Testament to help us understand that, to help us give us glasses to see, to give us the visual aids in order for us to understand it. What they signified is still very true. They They were there in order to point out something and point to something. They were to point out that there is a need of cleansing, that there is an alienation, that there is no way that you can approach God as you are. They pointed out something, but they also point to something. They point out and point out the need and point to an ultimate redeemer, who an ultimate sacrifice that would come and fulfill all of those rules and regulations on behalf of you and I. The sacrifice is pointed to something, an ultimate sacrifice that Jesus himself, that God himself takes on flesh and becomes a sacrifice. Instead of demanding sacrifice, sacrificial ritual, he becomes the sacrifice himself. You see, all of the complexity of that ritual, all of the bloodiness of the sacrificial laws, that it helped to point out the extraordinary holiness of God, but nothing points it out to the extent that God himself takes on flesh and that he dies in your place and in my place. More than any of that, more than the aggregate of all of the sacrificial laws, Jesus becoming flesh and dying a sacrificial death points out the extreme, utter, extraordinary holiness of God and our evil better than anything else in Scripture. 
And only when you see that, only when you see how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law, the sacrificial laws, only when you see that he bridges that distance between God's holiness and our evil do we see the gravity, the reversal of reconciliation. You see, the sacrificial laws, the clean laws, were put there to be a barrier as well as a bridge that they were saying, you are not holy, you cannot come into my presence. And yet, they were a bridge because they showed that God himself wanted a relationship with a people that had gone astray, that he wanted to bridge the distance, to reconcile the situation where his people were not fit to be in his presence. In the Old Testament, having a sacrificial offering to make represented that those approaching God agreed with him that there was a distance that needed to be bridged. They agreed with God that something outside of them had to make them clean. Only something outside of them could meet the requirements. It wasn't that anything that they could do could end that inner inner alienation, that something outside had to make them clean. They needed to be made clean in order to come to God. And listen, that's the upside-downness of the gospel because those who are closest, those who are very near, think that they're very far, and those who think that they're very near are actually very far. Did I say that right? When you think you're near, you're far. And when you think you're far, you're very near. That's why the pimps and the prostitutes and the tax collectors come, because they see their alienation from God. They see their alienation from the world. They know they have a spiritual deficit. But those who are farthest away think they're close because of their own behavior, think they're close because of their outward conformity. That's the upside-downness of the gospel. It's that those who are out become inside. Those who are outsiders become insiders. And those who are insiders... Insiders of the religious establishment become outsiders to Jesus because he turns everything upside down. In the New Testament, believing the gospel represents that you agree with God, that there is something outside of yourself that needs to make you clean, that needs to make you presentable before God. Believing the gospel agrees that God is utterly holy and that we are utterly sinful and that there is a great distance that has to be bridged by something other than us. That's what beginning to believe the gospel says, is that we begin to understand that the gospel represents the absolute, extraordinary holiness of God. And yet, that barrier becomes bridged by the work of Jesus. He says, you once were alienated from God because you were enemies. You were enemies of in your mind. You were hostile to me and my purposes. You wanted to approach me based upon your own goodness, your own religiosity, and that made you enemies in your mind. You once were alienated. God had charges against you, unfit, unclean, unable to come into my presence because I am holy. But Divine reversal, upside-downness. He takes everything and turns it around. The God who once accused you now accepts you because the distance has been bridged in Jesus. Do you see? You who once were unholy, unable to stand before God, have now been made holy, made able. If you believe the gospel, if you are a Christian, you have been made 
fit to stand in the presence of God. You once were alienated, but now, Paul says, but now you are without blemish. You are free free from all accusation. You have been made clean enough to stand in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God from Isaiah. Not because of what you have done, but because Jesus' ultimate sacrifice, final sacrifice, has made you perfectly clean, without blemish, free from any and all accusation. The reason for reconciliation, the reversal of reconciliation. And now, what are the results? Now, you may be saying, well, wait a minute, because you left off the last passage there. That sounds great, but there's a really big if there that Paul gives us. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. It seems kind of contradictory at face value, right? You're free. God has made eternal, full sacrifice and payment for you if you continue, if you hold out hope, if you keep going forward. There's a story in the Gospel of Mark, and it's a very strange story. There's a bleeding woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, and she pushes through a crowd to get to Jesus. The crowds are flocking around, and it's a busy street, presumably, and this woman, this bleeding woman, this sick woman, pushes through the crowd to touch Jesus because she knows she's not fit to approach him. She knows that she's going to be prevented from approaching him without some kind of subterfuge. So she sneaks up on him and believes that if if she can only touch the hem of his garment, if she can only touch his cloak, his clothing, then she'll be made clean. She had not been able to come to worship for 12 years. She had been an outsider for 12 years. She had to announce herself that she's unclean for 12 years. Can you imagine anything more isolating and lonely than that? She's a believer in Yahweh, but she can't come and worship because she's unclean, because she has this blemish. And anyone who touched her would be made unclean as well. So she goes to Jesus, pushes through the crowd, and just touches his garment, and Jesus senses it. He says, the power has gone out of me. Who is this that has touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. She trembled in fear because she had broken the law. She is an unclean person, a woman approaching a male, a rabbi, a holy person. She trembles with fear because what could happen to her? She could be thrown in prison. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. If you touch anything unclean, if you even even brush up against it, you're made unclean. But if you touch Jesus, if you touch just the hem of his garment, you're made acceptable. You're made clean. You're healed forever. His blood doesn't despoil you, but it washes you. 
His blood doesn't make you unclean, but it makes you fully presentable. It makes you acceptable before God. You make him dead, but through his death, you are made alive. But now, Paul says, but now, through Christ's physical body, you have been made clean. It's not simply that he chooses to feel merciful towards you. It's not that he decides to overlook your sin. It's that he deals with your sin. He reconciles you. He takes away that very thing that alienates you. That's what being reconciled together, it is dealing with the issue that stands between two parties. It is in this case a legal declaration that I see you as holy. Not overlook your sin, not pretend it's not there, but pay for it. Do away with it. Send it away forever. If, in verse 23, it is, in verse 23, is indeed very serious. Because you see people that proclaim Jesus as they're growing up and then walk away. Of course that happens. But it's a different kind of warning than we might think. Because if you understand what we've just been talking about, it's not make sure you are strong enough. Make sure you have enough faith that you can hold on to God's promises. It's don't let go of him. Don't let go of Jesus' garment. The same way that you came in, by faith alone, that you were made clean once and for all, live that same way. You came in through the gospel, live through the gospel. That's what it's saying. Don't give up hope. Don't give up on the gospel. It is true for you from the moment that you come in, and it's true forevermore. That's the if. If you will just believe what I have given you, if you will just believe in my promises, believe in my gospel, you have it. You are without blemish now and forevermore. That's the if. It's not if you're strong enough, if you keep up the faith, if you keep up the fight. It's that Jesus has become you, has, has made you clean. Jesus has become sin for you. Don Richardson, I looked through my computer because I thought I had told this illustration before and I couldn't find it anywhere. I did about three different searches. So if you've heard this before, a few weeks ago maybe, then just, uh, I think it's still a good story. Um, Don Richardson was a missionary for many years. He served in the tribes of Papua New Guinea. And he tells the story of these two tribes that he lived in that maintained this blood feud for many generations. They had been fighting and killing each other and stealing from each other for, uh, I don't know, it could be thousands of years, who knows, but at least for many generations. Each generation fought and they nursed their wounds and then came back for more, only to fight and kill again. Now, Don was there as a missionary. He wanted to share Jesus with them. He wanted to share the gospel with them and in hopes, perhaps, that the gospel, the reconciliation that is present in the gospel might help to reconcile these two tribes. But the problem was that in their culture, betrayal was a virtue. Giving up someone, being a snitch was a virtue. Stealing was a virtue. And so who did they, in the gospel stories, have affinity for? It was Judas. When they read the gospel stories, they said, we like this guy. I don't understand Jesus. Why would you tell us about him? He's weak. He doesn't betray people. He's not treacherous. And so he is perplexed for years how to get the gospel story across to where they would ally themselves with Jesus and not with Judas. 
Now, after one particular bloody battle, the two tribes decided, well, we've got to finally put an end to this. And they had this elaborate ritual that they went through. And this is when Don got it, because what they did was the two chieftains exchanged children, that each chief gave up one of their sons to go live in the other tribe. And as long as those sons were alive, there was peace between those two parties. And so Don said, I get it. They were reconciled. There was a peace because a father sent his son to live in the enemy community. And he was like, finally, I understand. That's Jesus. Don't you see? And the tribes were amazed. Oh, we get it. We understand now. Jesus is the peace child that we exchange to end warfare, to reconcile our two parties that are at conflict. I see now. The Father sends Jesus to be a peace child for his community, for his family that's walked away from him. Friends, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Keep that in mind as we continue to worship. Let's pray. Father, we pray that these words would ring true in our hearts, that if we are here looking in from the outside, wondering if we could become a Christian, let these words ring true for us. Let them lead us to Jesus. Let them lead us to repentance and faith. For those of us that are here who have been Christians for many years, it's the same prayer. Would you help us to repent and see uh, the truth of Jesus, the truth of the gospel? Let us be reconciled yet again. Father, we pray as we come to the table that you would send your Holy Spirit to minister to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we continue to worship, we are going to confess our faith, the faith that we hold in common with all churches everywhere. This is out of the Heidelberg Catechism, question one. If you are willing and able, would you stand with me to confess our faith together? What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has sent me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Thank you. You may be seated. As we come to the Lord's table, we see that the gospel, the work of Jesus is very earthy. It's very physical, that he died a physical death, that he transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to light through his physical body, as we just read. And now we come to feed upon his work once again. It is more than a remembrance ceremony. It's more than a memorial, more than just looking back and being thankful, although it is that. 
It is also a celebration. It's also a renewal meal. It is renewing you of the faith that you had as you entered in to the Christian life. So come now, if you are a Christian baptized into his family, come and feed along with those who belong to in town. If you're here and visiting, looking in from the outside, not yet sure if you can call yourself a Christian, then don't come to the table just yet. We hope that you will come very soon. Talk to us after the service. Talk to me about what it would look like to be baptized, to join the church, to join the family of Jesus, and then come and partake of this meal at a later date. Let's now pray for our meal together. Father, thank you for this meal. Thank you that you teach us, you show us, you demonstrate to us the the gospel. We pray that through this meal you would feed us, that you would change us, that you would strengthen us, you would transform us to be better ambassadors, to be better followers of Jesus, to more wholeheartedly seek you in all that we do. Father, because of you and your work, we come now and eat of this meal together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink this all in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread or you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And therefore, for many centuries, Christians have proclaimed the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. These are the gifts of God and for the people of God. So feed on him in your hearts by faith and with great thanksgiving. If you're helping serve, you can come forward now.